welcome, welcome um, to the Abide Project Lecture Series. Um, welcome to everybody who's here. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Neil Shenvey. Um, I was first introduced to him listening to Kevin DeYoung's podcast when he was talking about um, his book, uh, Why Believe, which um, I highly recommend to anybody who wants kind of a new um, take on kind of a, a apologetics. But uh, Dr. Shedby is one of these fellas who comes into the kind of the theological world through a different door than I think many of the people here attending. Um, he did his, his most of his work in the sciences. I, I think you, would you describe yourself as a theoretical physicist? Theoretical chemist. Theoretical yeah, same chemist. Thing, same thing. Yeah. Um, and he did work in quantum computing. And then um, now he homeschools his children and writes about uh, modern gender theory and critical theory and apologetics. Um, so his his angle on some of these topics is is a bit of a fresh breath of air for some of us who probably spend a lot of time reading more of a theological nature from a more, more theological academic perspective. Um, Neil takes a different approach to it. So we're excited to have you, Neil. Um, we're thankful for the work that you've done already in your ministry to um, many different Christians across the globe, um, and we're happy to have you uh, have you here. So why don't we just let you screen screen share and and head on into the talk? Sure. Thank you, Curtis. Let me just throw up my uh, slides here. Here we go. Can you guys see that? There we go. Yeah. So. Thank you, Curtis, for introducing me. My name is Neil Shenvey, and it's my pleasure to, tonight to speak to you about a biblical response to gender ideology or queer theory, goes by many names. Um, and I know you guys are concerned with the inroads that, uh, that queer theory or, or modern gender ideology has made into your denomination, and we all share your concerns across the evangelical church, across the Christian church. And so I, I'm trying to equip you guys today uh, first of all, to understand where these ideas are coming from, and then to give some basic responses to these ideas as Christians. Uh, so let me, here's my outline for tonight. I'll talk first, why does it matter? Show you how deeply embedded these ideas are in our culture. They're everywhere. They're really pervasive. Then I'll go through the core ideas of queer theory. I'll then talk about how we engage gender ideology or slash queer theory with scripture. I'll briefly touch on some practical questions and then I'll point you to some good resources on the subject and I'll leave plenty of time, I hope for Q and A. So let's begin by why does it matter? JK Rowling, the billionaire author of the Harry Potter franchise uh, has become a heretic. If you know anything about Twitter or social media she's become this outcast among progressives because she's actually very progressive. She is completely okay with homosexuality, same-sex marriage. She says, if you want to live as the other gender, that's totally fine. But the, all, all she says is that sex exists. Biological sex does exist. It's a real category. It's important for women to have same-sex spaces. As a sexual abuse survivor, she thinks it's important for, for example, there to be women's prisons that don't admit biological men or women's support groups that don't, aren't, aren't, are closed to biological men. And because of that transgressive speech, she's been uh, you know, repudiated by all of her Harry Potter actors like uh, Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, Rupert Grint. They said things like transgender women are women, trans people are who they say they are, trans women are women, trans men are men, trans women are women, trans women are women, trans men are men. That's not a single statement they all signed. Those are people repeating the same lines like Stepford Wives. And you're like, well, that's 
odd. Why do they say those things? Uh, here's another example. Uh, this is the gender-bred person. This is a teaching tool used by uh, numerous organizations. There are other variants on it. But historically, the Western world divided human beings into two categories, male and female, and everyone got put into one of those two buckets. But modern gender ideology says there are actually a number of independent spectra, gender identity, gender expression, biological sex, sexual orientation. So you can be anywhere on any one of these four spectra and your position can change from month to month, week to week, even day to day. You can be gender fluid, sexually fluid. Uh, and you can express yourself in various ways throughout the course of your life. And this is all rooted, you'll see, in the ideas of queer theory. Uh, this is a CNN article from, I think, two years ago. And in that news article, not an op-ed, in that news article, they said this, it's not possible to know a, gender, a person's gender identity at birth, and there is no consensus criteria for assigning sex at birth. That's biological sex. And that statement was up for 24 hours before sort of outcry, public outcry led them to edit that sentence out. But here is CNN claiming in a news article that there's no consensus criteria for determining a newborn baby's sex at birth. Black Lives Matter website, uh, they're known for being advocates for racial justice, but they also featured a statement of beliefs that include statements like these. They want to do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk. They foster a queer affirming network. They want to free themselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. And they sold shirts that say black future is queer. Uh, last one, this is a screenshot from a video shown by the television program Blues Clues during Pride Month, this is 2021, I think. And that show, Blues Clues, is targeted to an audience of preschoolers, ages three to six, maybe. In that video, sung by uh, drag queen Nina West uh, to the tune of Bansko Marching, they had lines like these. These babas are non-binary. They love each other so proudly. Ace, bi, and pan grown-ups you see can love each other so proudly. Uh, ace means asexual, bisexual, and pansexual. This is being sung to toddlers who don't even understand their shapes and letters yet. And if you notice in that screenshot, there's a, a beaver who, who has double mastectomy scars, where, so this represents a biological female who has had her breast removed surgically. And this was a, a, an important detail that people picked up on actually. Okay, so something's going on clearly in our culture and we don't know what to call it necessarily, what I'm going to show you tonight is that these, uh, all of these cultural artifacts are flowing out of the core ideas of a discipline called queer theory. So what is queer theory? And I'm going to boil it down to, to four big ideas. Number one, the strict dichotomy between sex and gender. Number two, the idea that gender and sexual norms are not just social constructs, but they're oppressive social constructs. Three, that oppression is intersectional. And four, that all norms should be deconstructed. So let's go through each of those ideas in turn. Okay, so queer theory came from, it's actually new. So the first use of the term queer theory probably came from Tessa De Laurentiis' paper in Science, the Science Journal in 1991, 92. Um, but the work goes back 
a few decades before that. So people like Adrian Rich and Judith Butler wrote important papers that are still cited by queer theorists today. And even farther back, queer theories rooted in the foundational postmodernism, post-structuralism of Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault. So they were all contributors to what eventually became queer theory. So what are the four core ideas here? Number one, this, uh, there's a, a sharp wedge driven between biological sex and gender. So in the minds of queer theorists, biological sex refers to your chromosomes, your hormones, your, maybe your body parts, you know, some combination of those. Whereas gender is a social category that is independent of your biology. They drive a very sharp wedge between biological sex and gender, and gender, they say, is a social construct. So here's uh, Ricky Wilkins in Queer Theory, Gender Theory. Wilkins writes that gender is a language, a system of meanings and symbols, along with rules and privileges and punishments pertaining to their use. So gender, according to Wilkins, is not rooted in biology. It's a social construct. It's a system of symbols or a language. Here's Judith Lorber. Uh, she writes, gender and sex are not equivalent and gender as a social construction does not flow automatically from genitalia and reproductive organs. And then here are Anderson and Collins in their anthology, Race, Class and Gender. They say gender like race is a socially constructed experience, not a biological imperative. Now the comparison to race is very important. As Christians, we'd say that race is indeed a social construct. So yes, there is ethnicity, there is ancestry, but these categories like black, white, right? My favorite one is Asian. I mean, think about this, you're, you're Asian. What does that even mean? Asia has like 4 billion people in the continent of Asia, you know, hundreds of different ethnic groups, thousands of ethnic groups speaking thousands of languages, and yet you're all Asian. That's a human constructed bucket we've created. But that's not true as Christians of male and female. Male and female are God-ordained categories, whereas race is not. But to critical theorists, to queer theorists, race and gender are equally theorized as social constructs. Here's a good analogy. Imagine the biological category or the biological fact of your height. So you, imagine you classified people that are six feet tall or over six feet tall versus under six feet tall. That's a fact, right? Some people are six feet or larger. Some people are smaller than six feet. That's a biological fact. However, imagine we created social categories of jock and nerd and then arbitrarily said that anyone over six foot tall is a jock, falls into that category socially, and anyone who is under six feet tall is automatically a nerd. So here, this is the analogy between how we would think about, say, jocks and nerds and how queer theorists think about sex and gender. They say, they claim that we've confused a biological fact like sex with a socially constructed category like gender in the same way that we might confuse an arbitrary line between six feet tall above and below with categories like jock and nerd. So that's their take on how that, that works. Okay, second point. Queer theorists believe more than that. So not only is gender a social construct, it's an oppressive social construct. Listen to Wilkins again. Wilkins writes, these binaries like masculine, feminine, man, woman, top, bottom, butch, 
femme, real artificial, are not just curious ways we have of understanding the world. They are political. They're about power. They create hierarchies, male, female, white, black, colonial, native, that produce winners and losers. So these categories are not just harmless or innocent. They're made to perpetuate power dynamics and, and hierarchies. Here is Jagoz, Anne-Marie Jagoz, in her book, Queer Theory and Introduction. She writes that gay liberation was committed to eradicating fixed notions of femininity and masculinity. That move would similarly liberate any other groups oppressed by what it critiqued as normative sex and gender roles. So in other words, she's saying the gay liberation movement was not just an attempt to gain sort of quote unquote equal rights for, for gay people, but they ultimately wanted to deconstruct gender and sexual roles and norms. Those things, those things were oppressive. They wanted to free themselves and others from those categories. Here's Blumenfeld in an essay in Readings for Diversity and Social Justice. He writes, heterosexism, which has its roots in sexism, is the institutionalization of a heterosexual norm or standard which establishes and perpetuates the notion that all people are or should be heterosexual, thereby privileging heterosexuals and heterosexuality. So again, the whole idea that heterosexuality is a norm, it's a standard, it's God-ordained, that's all oppressive. We have to deconstruct that very notion of heterosexuality as a norm. Okay, so again, not, these are not innocent categories, or not accidental. They were created to perpetuate existing power structures. And here, example again would be taking our jock and nerd analogy. Imagine that we had this category of jock and nerd and anyone over six feet tall was deemed a jock. Anyone under six feet tall was deemed a nerd. But there were certain uh, harmful stereotypes associated with those categories. So jocks were considered to be strong, athletic, attractive, assertive. Whereas anyone who's a nerd is considered to be weak, unathletic, unattractive, submissive. You might say, well, wait, that's not true though. There are people who are under six feet tall who are very athletic and strong. And there are people over six feet tall who are not athletic at all. So it's not really fair to shove these people to these rigid boxes, right? But moreover, what if it turned out that in society because of these stereotypes that only jocks could participate in student government and only jocks could win college scholarships just socially? Well, again, that would be an oppressive norm. And so we'd say you have, we have to deconstruct this idea of jocks and nerds, these categories, which are not totally arbitrary. Other cultures do not call everyone over six feet a jock and everyone under six feet a nerd. So we have to dismantle these ideas and deconstruct these ideas about jock, being a jock and being a nerd. Their, their social constructs are not real categories. Okay, they're, they're not natural categories or God-ordained categories. These are oppressive social constructs. That would be their perspective on this, uh, the dynamic. Okay, third, oppression is intersectional. So uh, this is Jagoz citing Alan Young, who writes, gay liberation also has a perspective for revolution based on the unity of all oppressed people. That is, there can be no freedom for gays in a society which enslaves others through male supremacy, racism, and economic exploitation, capitalism. Here's Wilkins again. Wilkins writes, race is inseparable from other dimensions like age, sex, class, sexual orientation, and gender. Proponents of critical race theory are reimagining race, racial identity, and its intersection with homosexuality and even queerness. So you can't separate out 
a gender activism, from racial justice activism, from uh, gay liberation, from uh, from classism and, and, and communism, all of these actions are part of undermining these interlocking systems of oppression. They're all included, they all taken down simultaneously. Uh, here Anderson Collins again, like racism, sexism is a system of beliefs and behaviors by which a group is oppressed, controlled and exploited because of presumed gender differences. Homophobia, the fear of homosexuality, is part of the system of social control that legitimates and enforces gender oppression. It supports the system of compulsory heterosexuality. So again, critical theorists broadly, including queer theorists, think all these oppressions are interlocking. They can't be separated. Here's a table from Central D'Angelo's book, Speaks for Itself. By the way, I will give you a URL at the end of the talk that gives you a link to all these slides. So don't worry about taking notes there. It's all on my website. Okay, and finally, queer theory usually is thought of in terms of gender and sexuality. That makes sense. But remember, it's rooted in post-structural or post-modern philosophy. And that philosophy has a radical take on issues like truth, power, language. It's not confined to just sex and gender. So really, if you go deep into queer theory, you'll find them advocating for really, really extreme forms of deconstruction. For example, Wilkins challenges the idea that, you know, that sex is a given, biological sex is real, whereas only gender is a social construct. Wilkins says this, what if sex, the original given, transcendent, and universal, itself could be deconstructed? Like the body itself, the facts of sexual reproduction have resonance only if we imbue them within a meaningful narrative context. In other words, what Wilkins is saying is that, you know, body parts like your nose and your ear, or your, your, your toes, they don't really, they're not meaningful apart from some narrative that's socially constructed. In the same way, Wilkins would say that our female and male anatomies are not inherently meaningful, that, that really sex is always an only gender from the beginning. And we can deconstruct the, even the categories of biological male and female. Those are also equally socially constructed. Here's Jagos. Uh, and this is going to be a little bit disturbing, so trigger warning. Jagos writes, the issue of intergenerational sex, that is sex between adults and children, continues to be debated vigorously in many gay and lesbian communities. The protection of children is deemed by some to be ethically crucial to the development of gay identity, but is dismissed by others as, quote, erotic hysteria. And Jagos asks questions like this, why is age, unlike, say, race or class, understood as a sexualized power differential protected by law? In other words, you know, blacks and whites in critical theorist minds, have, there's a power dynamics in their relationship, male and female, that's true too. But why would age be protected? We don't outlaw, you know, a white man and a black woman getting married. We don't anymore, thank goodness. But why do we outlaw sex between, say, an adult and a child? Why is that power differential codified into law? And she goes on, is it possible to eroticize children in an ethical way? These are questions that commonly raised and by no means resolved in the controversy over intergenerational sex. That is a true statement. You will find queer theorists wrestling with, or, or frankly, endorsing pedophilia. And then uh, 
last one, this is a uh, book by Patrick Ching called Radical Love. It is full of really, really horrifying quotes. This is not the most awful one, but it'll give you a taste of the kind of thing. So he's explicitly applying queer theory to theology. He says he's doing, quote, queer theology. And out of queer theology, and other people are doing it too, come statements like these. The Trinity needs to be understood as an orgy, which breaks down the privileging of binary or pair bonded relationships. So he's or, or, he's, he, actually, this is, this is Althus Reed, not him. He's quoting her and summarizing her. But the idea is the Trinity is like an orgy, and therefore he's defending polygamous sex and, you know, yeah, that kind of stuff. Each person of the Trinity has her slash her, that's actually a typo, own closet of lovers and forbidden desires, for example, Jesus' relationships with Mary Magdalene and Lazarus. You don't want to know the other things that are in that book, but the point is here, you cannot apply queer theory just to gender norms and sexual norms. That's bad enough. It's going to leak out into every area of theology. You'll deconstruct everything in the most radical possible way. And that's just one example. Uh, I can quote from other books too. Okay, so that was a crash course in queer theory. Let's talk about some basic biblical touchstones that we have to bring it, that we have to, in, in the back of our minds, maybe explicitly touch on in any conversation about gender ideology. Number one, gender is God ordained, it is not merely a social construct that from the beginning God created human beings, male and female, two categories. There's a binary, male and female. And the Bible, not only does it say these are these are categories rooted in biology, but it even uses the male-female binary to illustrate spiritual truths, like the relationship between God and his people, between Christ and the church. So it's not merely a physical thing. It's saying that this, this binary is crucial to understanding theology. Right? We know Christ relates to us as a husband relates to his wife. We, the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is not the bride, and we're not the husband. We, the church is the bride of Christ, and he's the husband. So if you leave behind all these notions of gender and sexuality based on traditional reading of biblical morality, you have to abandon all of the metaphors that the Bible uses to communicate what it means to be God's people. So it's not just a biological category. Um, gender is good. We don't have to be embarrassed or ashamed of gender. The fact that we're male and female is actually part of God's very good creation from the beginning. And again, you set Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, right? Beginning of the Bible to the end, it uses this language of these metaphors invoking gender. Well, the, the New Jerusalem comes from heaven as a bride prepared for her husband. So we, we abandon this gender binary. You have to radically reread, reinterpret all the biblical metaphors and language about God's relationship to his people. Um, we can acknowledge that some norms are social constructs. We don't have to go the other route and say, no, all expressions of gender are God-ordained. No, no, some expressions of gender are indeed social, socially constructed. So for example, in our culture, Blue is for boys and pink is for girls. You go to a, have a baby, they put a blue cap on its, his head or they put a pink cap on her head immediately, right? So in our culture, blue is for boys, pink is for girls. But in other cultures, 
And you go in European culture 500 years ago, men wore pink because pink was the color of blood and fire, at least in their minds. So the point is, it's not like God ordained blue to be a masculine color. So we can acknowledge that some of the things that we say are uh, nat you know, part of our culture's expression of gender, uh, they're really a cultural expression. They're not uh, universal. For uh, example, you know, men in our culture don't wear skirts, right? But in, in Scotland, men wear kilts, which are kind of like Scottish skirts. So you see what I'm saying? The point is there are culturally determined ways that we express our gender. We don't have to assume that all of those things are God ordained. Now, the question is, well, why don't, why, why don't we just say, well, it's fine then. Men can wear skirts in our culture. It's not a God ordained category. You know, but gender is. So the Christian position is that gender, our social categories, male or female, is rooted in our biology. So the category of male and female, they came about because God ordained that men, that the human beings are either male or female. And so your gender, your category is rooted in your biology. Each culture expresses masculinity or femininity in different ways. But if we're, when we're part of a given culture, we should express our masculinity or femininity in that culture's way. Why? We want to tell people we rejoice in our gender. We love the fact that God created us either male or female. We don't have to hide it. We don't want to change our gender because God's creation is good. So the reason we don't wear skirts is not because skirts are universally, you know, uh, or, you know, what are you going to call a knee-length piece of cloth, <laughs> whether it's a toga or a, a kilt or a skirt. That knee-length article of clothing in some cultures is very masculine. You know, a Roman soldier wearing like a quote-unquote skirt uh, uh, over top of his like battle armor. Yeah, that's a masculine attire. But in our culture, we want to follow whatever our culture does in expressing and rejoicing in our gender, which we believe God gave us our bodies and they're expressed in gender categories. Okay, uh, and then similarly, some but not all norms are oppressive. You know, there are gender norms uh, that are and have been oppressive. Some uh, cultures say that women shouldn't learn to read. Well, that's wrong. We want women to learn to read God's word and study it. And so it's wicked to say women are, are forbidden to read in this culture. Uh, yeah, here's another norm. Uh, you know, people shouldn't walk around naked in public. Well, that's a good, that's a good norm, right? We agree with that. Uh, how about this one? Men shouldn't express emotion. Men should be totally stoic. Well, that's not a biblical norm. In the Bible, David weeps publicly. Jesus weeps pu weep publicly. So the idea that men should be totally emotionless and stoic, that's a, that's a bad norm. In all these cases, we have to ask, is this norm rooted in the Bible or not? Is it neutral or is it actually anti-biblical? So we can, ex can concede that some norms are wrong and oppressive, but not all. Not all norms need to be deconstructed. And then finally, we don't have to affirm someone's choices, desires, feelings, actions. We don't have to affirm those things in order to love them. And in fact, if we really love a person, we will reject and admonish them when we, they do things that are wrong and evil, because we believe that sin ultimately dishonors God, number one, but number two, it breaks you. Sin ultimately harms you. It corrupts you. So in love, out of love, we don't remain silent and affirm people in their sin. We don't think about yourself. You don't affirm you. Hopefully you don't affirm your own sin. You battle against it. One, because you want to honor your creator, but two, because you hopefully believe that sin ultimately is bad for you. We were created to be holy. 
to be like God, when we sin, we we disfigure our uh, we disfigure our humanity. So the point is, we don't have to be bullied into thinking that if I love person one, I'll affirm everything they are and everything they do. You don't do that with yourself. You don't do that with your spouse, your kids, or your friends. You don't have to do that with anyone else. You can love them without affirming them. Okay, practical questions. I'll keep this brief because I want to leave time for Q and A. Um, I'll run through these really fast, and then we can go back and revisit them if you want to. Um, what causes gender dysphoria? No one knows. Honestly, gender dysphoria is this deeply this deep feeling that you are in the wrong body. You're uncomfortable with your body. It's often today uh, used to refer to gender dysphoria, but there are other dysphorias. There are rare conditions where people feel like one of their limbs doesn't belong to them. And some people will actually amputate their own limbs to get relief from this feeling of dysphoria. Now, that's clearly a mental illness, but we, 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 people say, well, what's then gender dysphoria? Well, people don't want to say it's a mental illness, but the point is there's a disconnect between their mind and the body. No, there's no doubt. Some people experience a disconnect between what they feel like they, what body they feel like they should be in when they're actually in. The question is, why would you assume that you should disfigure the body to match the mind instead of just working on fixing the mind? Why not figure out how you can get your mind to accept the body you actually have? But the bottom line is no one really knows. No one knows what is the source of gender dysphoria or really any dysphoria. So these are just shrug your shoulders. We don't know. As Christians, we don't have to say we have the answer. We can say we know what we ought to do. God commands us to embrace reality and to renew our minds and thinking about ourselves and about creation. So we don't have to pinpoint the causes to know how we should think about these issues as Christians. Um, is it true that the brains of transgender people resemble the brains of their experienced gender? In other words, do uh, transgender women, that is biological men who want to be women, do they really have brains that are women, female brains? Uh, you hear that occasionally in the media from some scientific studies. Well, I've read these studies, uh, many of them, and the evidence is not there, frankly. I haven't seen any evidence that's clear that's very noisy extremely small sample sizes. And there's, if you look at just the distribution here, it's all over the map. You can't really see, oh, there's a clear male and female brains. That's just not the case. And certainly in these studies. So no, there's no good evidence that the brains of transgender people resemble the, the gender that they experience. It's not, there's, I mean, again, we could come up with evidence in 20 or 30 years, I don't know. But right now, no, there's no good evidence that's, that's the case. Um, how do you deal with gender ideology in the workplace? People will say, well, my boss is going to, I'm worried he's going to make me use these pronouns or, or make me take this training course. And what do I do? Briefly, I'd say, number one, have good relationships with your coworkers and your boss. That's sort of, you should always try that, right? You should always be hopefully in good relationship with people that work with you. Um, to be proactive, not reactive. So approach them before this becomes implemented at a company-wide level. Talk to them in advance. Uh, don't wait until it happens. Uh, three, provide input. Explain your own position, right? So don't go to them and say, I have a problem. They say, well, what do you believe? Well, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. Well, we'll think about that. Get ready to give them a little two-minute talk or explanation of what you believe as a Christian. Do your homework. Make sure you can cite 
scientific studies, cite someone, psychologists, someone you can sort of back up what you're saying. Um, and then what I would do is in a, in a secular workplace, I'd appeal to two values. One is freedom of conscience, two is compelled speech. So most companies would affirm in principle these sort of freedoms or liberties that we can then appeal to as uh, even as Christians without invoking a biblical framework. Because obviously your secular boss doesn't care what the Bible says. But you can point out that you should have freedom of conscience. If your conscience does not permit you to use someone's preferred pronouns, then you should be able to exercise that freedom of conscience. You would not want a Jewish coworker to be compelled to eat pork. You would not want a Muslim coworker compelled to, or the example I use, imagine that your boss called you in one day and said, from now on, you'll refer to Donald Trump as our dear leader from now on. If you don't, you'll be fired. You would say, look, I don't, or, or Joseph Biden, you know, you're going to refer to Joe Biden as our dear leader. What you'd say is I would not want anyone compelled to go against their conscience. Absolutely not. I, if, I've, um, if a Muslim said I can't do that in good conscience, I would defend their freedom of conscience. If a, if a Jewish person did, if a Hindu did, if an atheist did, well, in the same way as a Christian, I want my freedom of conscience. I can't do these things, and therefore I want you to respect that. And then finally, compelled speech. This is part of freedom of speech that, that people can't, shouldn't be able to make you say certain things. That goes for preferred pronouns. They can't make you call someone by the, the pronoun that you don't want to call them. That's compelling speech. I think the company should respect that in the same way they'd respect someone who said, I don't want to compel you to call Donald Trump our dear leader. Uh, and what about pronouns then? So what do you do? Uh, you know, this uh, person in the picture is Buck Angel, who's a biological female, but identify, well, uh, Buck has transitioned, obviously taking hormones, and looks like a man. So, but he admits he's actually a vocal, I'm calling him he is, he looks that way, but Buck looks like a biological male. But he, ah, sorry, Buck recognizes that he's not a male. He says outright, I am not a biological male. I'm a biological female. You have to re realize biology is actually there. So what do you do when someone says, call me by these pronouns? I would say the one, number one, the primary motivation has to be we want to honor God, period. So the, that's the highest standard we're called to. Honor, loving your neighbor is a second standard. Yes, we do it. But the first category we ask is what honors God? Second, yes, love your neighbor. So how do we then navigate this? And I've actually changed my mind on this. I used to think it was not such a big deal. I've come to see, actually, I think it is, for reasons I'll go into. A couple options for Christians. Last names are gender neutral. Call someone by their last name. I tried to, you know, for Buck, it was hard to call Buck by Buck over and over without saying he or him. Uh, but it, work on it. You can work on calling people by either their first name that they've chosen because you can literally change your name on your driver's license and it says it says Buck now. So, okay, Buck. Last names, people in college called me Shenvi all the time. They just everyone called them by their last names. So yeah, call someone and say, I, I, I can't use that pronoun for you, but I'd be happy to have a call your, your, by your last name, by a proper name. Uh, the pronoun they has been used of singular people since the 14th century. I looked it up. It's not like a modern invention. So all the time I'll say colloquially, I went to the post office. They told me that 
my stamps weren't enough. Is it they I mean like no 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 the person at the the, the person at the desk? It, it, I'm special, and I'm not saying they them. I'm just saying they as in a generic human pronoun. So I think if someone says call me she her or he him, I just say refer to them as they in the third person. If you want to, I think it's okay. They say I'm non-binary. Please use they them. I'd be hesitant about that. Now here's why. One of the reasons I changed my thinking about this has to do with detransitioners. There are a, a growing number of mostly adolescent girls, biological females, who identified as male, often had surgeries or hormones, and then later realized they made a terrible mistake and detransitioned back to female. And they've written these heart-wrenching stories about how they're like, why did no, why did people just affirm me, affirm me, affirm me? What did I do to myself? There's just tragic stories about how they're dealing with the aftermath of these surgeries and, and hormone treatments. When you are saying, I will go ahead and use your pronouns and do whatever you say, you're a woman. If you think you're a woman, you're a woman, do all those things. Not only are you sort of at least obscuring the reality of God's creation, you're also harming them because you're helping them affirm a lie. The analogy I use is imagine an anorexic girl who is 90 pounds and starving to death said, I need you to call me fatty because I am hideously fat. So call me fatty from now on. You would say out of love for you, I can't do that because you are not actually fat and I will not help you to embrace a reality that is false. So you can love her, you can, but you can say out of love, I cannot do what you're asking. I think that has to be the, what we say to people is that it's not that I hate you, it's that this is really what I believe is best, and that's why I can't, you know, be party to this. I think I could, you could, you could end up really regretting this. So, and this only comes into play when you're talking about someone in the third person. So, if they're face to face, you call them you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think this is there are lots of options open for Christians without using people's preferred pronouns. Um, oh, last one, intersex. Occasionally, you hear people claim that the existence of intersex individuals proves that gender is not a binary. Um, the Intersex Society of North America says no. Uh, intersex people don't identify usually as trans. They're not a third gender. They are people whose biology is indeterminate. That's the definition of intersex. So the Christian view is that gender, the category, the social category, is rooted in sex biology. But it, so intersex is a person whose biology is indeterminate. People aren't sure they, they have a combination of male and female sexual characteristics. Okay, well, if someone's biology is indeterminate, it follows logically that their gender would be also indeterminate, right? It does not contradict the Christian position at all. If gender is rooted in sex, if, you, if sex is indeterminate, then your biology or your, your, your gender will likewise be indeterminate. So it's not a contradiction to affirm the gender binary. Um, how common is intersex? It's not 2%. Sorry, it's probably around I 0.018% is low, I think. Uh, a good a good number is probably 0.05%, one in 2000 births. I can explain why later, but it's if you hear 2%, that's not true at all. Uh, okay, lastly, really quickly resources. Um, Nancy Piercy's book Love Thy Body is a really good holistic, comprehensive Protestant view of the body. Protestants and evangelicals tend to have a pretty 
uh, piecemeal and not coherent view of the body. Um, we can say, well, I believe this about gender, this about sex, this is about marriage, but we really try to unite them. And uh, Love Thy Body does a great job of talking about all these issues, euthanasia, uh, abortion, uh, gender, sexuality, and put them, put them all within a Protestant and biblical framework. So I recommend that book. This is uh, Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage. Uh, Schreier is a, I think she's a Jewish journalist. So she's writing this book from a secular perspective, but it's all about the trend of young teenage girls transitioning, often on mass in a friend group, you know, in huge numbers uh, after exposure to social media. And she asks, why is this happening? And, and it concludes that it's probably, there's an element of what's called social contagion. It's a fad. It's like cutting yourself or like anorexia, where you get these friend groups that all adopt this, this identity. And then, but unfortunately, it's leading to long-term harm. So, but she's a secular book. I think it's a great book to read and give to your secular friends because she's not approaching this as a, a sort of moral issue. She's saying, what's going on psychologically and socially? And I'm worried as a secular, or at least not a, definitely not a Christian person. Um, so again, a great book uh, and to, to, to share with secular people in your life. Christian writing on this topic, Andrew Walker, God and the Transgender Debate, very accessible and practical in terms of thinking about how you practically deal with these issues. I'll just recommend that uh, as a, uh, it's very easy to read. If you want to get into the theory more, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is phenomenal. I will warn you, it's 400 pages long and it's a, you know, it's a, he's dealing with the philosophy behind the transgender movement today, but he begins with like the romantic period in the 1800s. So it's this tour de force. He walks you through the last 200 years of philosophy and how it pertains to transgender today, but it's excellent. And then finally, uh, if you want, if you can wait a few more months, just today I announced that this, you can pre-order my book, Critical Dilemma with Dr. Pat Sawyer. It's all about critical theory broadly, including critical race theory, queer theory. So we have chapters on queer theory and then a chapter on critiquing it biblically, but it will give you a very, very, very detailed view of these theories. Uh, I, we've tried to be extremely scholarly, but it's also accessible. You can, I, I asked editors and endorsers, they said, no, an average Christian can read this. It's not over their heads, but it will give you, I mean, it's, it has currently, don't get scared, it's 750 plus footnotes, um, but it's written accessibly, but it, 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 we do bring out the big guns in terms of understanding these ideas. So if, if you can wait until October, pick that up, it should be helpful to you. So that's it. Thank you. Um, if you want to have these slides, go to shenviapologetics.com slash slides. They're all there. And I'm on Twitter at Neil Shenvi, and I'd be happy to take questions right now. So thank you. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Neil. That was, um, that was wonderful and um, somewhat harrowing. Um, <laughs> to have it all summed up in such a in such short order. Um, I, I've got a few questions, but let me start with Peter's question here. Um, he says he teaches mental health at his university, background in psychiatric social work. Is there a Christian curriculum addressing gender dysphoria? And I think that's no. a very timely question. 
and not that I know of at all. So you'll have to ask a Christian counselor or therapist, but I'm not aware of any. Yeah, because I think it's something that like I know even in one of the local churches where I'm at that we, there's some students struggling with this and youth leaders especially are at a loss. Um, because yeah, it's just so hard to deal with when they're getting told so much um, mess from what from one perspective. One, uh, one interesting resource would be to look at some of the stories of detransitioners. So there's a woman named Helena Kirshner who has an essay called, I think it's called A Rose by Any Other Name. Uh, or yeah, and, and it, but basically just a long essay of her own experience going, getting, going into and then out of the transgender movement and how, well, her experience. It's worth having students just read her story. Stories are powerful. Mm -hmm. It's kind of unfortunate in some ways because people don't think rational anymore, but just reading her testimony of how she got sucked into what she would now call a cult and then how she left eventually and how she's still healing from all of that. There are a lot of people like that who are coming out publicly and saying, this was really bad for me. It was not gender. Just, it, was, it was something else going on in my life that I misinterpreted. I was told, just take testosterone, your problems will be solved. That was a lie. It, it ended up hurting me and I had other things I had to deal with. So that might be just a way to get them outside of, because there is so, it is true. They just, they fixate on, without knowing it, they're seeing things through this ideological lens and ignoring other issues because they're told, and they're told terrible things. Anyway, the, the point is have them read her testimony. I think it'll be very helpful maybe, or at least you read it first and see if it'll help them. Yeah. Um, Laura says, and she got me hooked on this too, listening to the Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling from mm, the Free yeah. Press. Mm. I don't know if you've been listening to that, but uh, Laura was struck with a suggestion that the increase of pornography and the violent kind may be correlated to the increase of gender confusion and the multiplication of gender identities. Do you have thoughts on this? Are there studies on this? I, I don't know. That, I mean, unfortunately, what I've found is a lot of the studies the scientific studies are throttled. Like you have to fit a certain narrative and they're often spun to fit that narrative too. And you just can't even study certain things because it's just not, you're not allowed to, you don't get grants funded. So I've, unfortunately, I feel like, yeah, I wish I could dig into the literature more there. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I don't know. I, my, you know, my off the cuff take would be that uh, you know, watching pornography rots your brain. And so sure, it could account for a lot of this. Actually, I think Helena talks about this, but well, some of the, um, among females, the proliferation of porn has, and, and sort of the acceptance of porn by men has made them terrified because they talk about how intimidating it is when you're a 13-year-old girl to know that all your male classmates are watching porn every day. And expecting to, you know, go out like for the skating rink and then have sex. And the fear of that, well, a simple out is to, oh, I'm a man. To avoid the problems of dealing with the dating market or Tinder or whatever the horrifying things are out there right now. Um, they escape that by transitioning. That was one of the things that came up a lot is that girls, some, some girls at least feel like it's, a, it's an easy off-ramp. It gets you away from this hypersexualized culture, which is tragic, but it's possible. Again, I, but I haven't seen studies. 
Yeah. One of the things that like surprises me when kind of engaging in this world of uh, gender theory is like how backwards it is and the, and the irony that it's steeped in, right? If you, have a, if you have a young kid who's a boy and starts wanting to play with girl things, they right away think that this is a girl in a boy's body, right? So they're they're completely oppressing this child with, with <laughs> cultural gender norms in an attempt to liberate them. Um, one like, thing I is, wanted to say, actually, I forgot to mention this, but yeah, Christians should beware that trap so of having these very rigid, unbiblical gender norms. So sometimes you'll see, and yeah. I don't really personally see it, but you, you could imagine some guy who's like three-year-old three -year -old son wants to play with a doll, and he slaps his hand, like, you can't do that, or he'll, or like, you see him playing with a doll, and they're like, oh, you're, you're acting like a girl, or maybe you are a girl now. Like, that ironically, you're following the same trap as the queer theorists. Mm -hmm. We don't think dolls are inherently masculine. I mean, oh, oh no, boys can't play with dolls. They can play with action figures. Oh yeah, right. Totally not a doll. It's an action figure, you know? So that kind of thing, we, if you have a boy who's very sensitive and doesn't really like rough and tumble play, doesn't like sports, he's not a girl. He's a boy with a slightly different personality. That's all he is. It's a, you don't have to cram him into some box. We can uphold on the one hand, God has certain ethical norms and certain, you know, and I think we can say on average, are boys more roughhousing than girls? Yeah, of course. But don't fall into the trap of saying if your boy's not like this little hunter gatherer, then he's not, he must be a girl. That's, that's totally not biblical. Uh, so just be okay with saying, yeah, we have, we have, there are um, averages, group averages, yes. And there are stereotypes, yes. And there are also ethical norms in the Bible, yes. But if, you're, if your little boy likes to do something that's stereotypically, you know, quote unquote girly, like, I don't know, an example, my son, when he was four, I have permission to share this story. When my son was four, uh, out of the blue, suddenly he, he began saying, I want to be a girl. I wish I were a girl. And we were like, what? Well, no, we're freaking out. And my, my wife was like, no, I was freaking out. She's like, Neil, calm down. Just hang in there. Don't worry about it. Ask him questions. After about a week, we figured out what happened was this. His two-year-old sister had just begun to start playing with mommy's dresses, wearing mommy's lipstick, putting on perfume, wearing mommy's high heels for fun, dress up. And whenever my son tried to do that, we're like, oh, no, no, boys can't do that. Boys can't do that. Boys can't do that. So in his mind, his sister could wear pants. She could play with all his toys. She could do all the things that he could do but you could do other things that he couldn't do. So for him, being a boy was a purely negative category. It's all the things he couldn't do. So the, all I had to do was I said, oh, that's what you're thinking, buddy? Well, let me show you what a tie is. Let me show you how to put on a tie. So he put on my froggy tie. And let me show you, we have cologne and suits. And instantly, never again did he say, did he say I want to be a girl. So just understanding why he was saying that instantly solved the problem. So just ask questions. Don't jump to conclusions based on, you know, some weird gender theory. I, I think it's so important. I heard a preacher talk about this once and just the, the, the reality of our Christian witness and making sure that we're affirming proper gender norms and not oppressive gender norms mm -hmm. is helpful to those, those, to the communities around us. It's part of our mission and our witness. Um, so one of the things that I think is worthy to talk about, especially in our context in the Christian Reformed Church, because we're, our church has, you know, has been engaged in some discussion around same-sex marriage and what does the church affirm and whatnot. And there's, we saw at our last dinner that there seems to be 
you know, to use kind of more uh, a d- d- division language, there's, there's a generational divide, as it were, between uh, people who affirm and people who don't. And we saw that typically younger pastors and elders and delegates in a denomination were um, more conservative when it came to, you know, same-sex attraction, same-sex marriage, and things like that. And I've had conversations with other people, and I think there's there's something to be said where um, when you, like, as, as a younger person, I can see the track. I've, 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 I've lived through this internet age where I see this um, kind of development of gender theory and the effects of transgender youth and whatnot. And I think older generations who spend far less time on the internet than I do don't always see that. So, so their, their view of, say, affirming a same-sex marriage is purely a monogamous same-sex marriage, kind of like a, a, a version of, of a regular marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't see this other stuff. And I think to try to explain it to them, like I don't, I don't even know if they could understand it because it's so bonkers. Especially if you're coming out of, you know, if you're a boomer coming out of '50s, '60s, '70s era, like this, the whole idea of people just flip flopping genders and pansexual, asexual, all these things. Like, how would you, how would you explain some of this to people who have never encountered gender theory ever? I, I'm begging these people, and it drives me bonkers. Read the primary sources. And now I'll pitch, pitch my book again. Our book is full of primary sources. I'm so tired, and Pat is too, of hearing people tell us that we don't understand these theories. We do understand these theories. We have read hundreds of books on the subject, and, there, and we quote, again, 750 footnotes worth of stuff, often just by block quotes. It is that crazy. When you say, oh, all they're trying to do is they just want to, well, they just want to redefine marriage. That's bad enough. It is, that is, they want to do it, but it goes way beyond that. Because if you understand their theory, it's not merely that they just, this is actually, it's funny, queer theorists critique what they call the assimilationist model or ethnic model of of homosexuality. Because they are concerned that gay the gay rights movement emphasized that we're just like you like you said we're just we're just like a married couple only only we're two men and queer theorists reject that we're seeing that now they don't want to just get equal right to marry you know for two men uh you know by, by redefining marriage they want to deconstruct gender itself and that's what we're seeing so I, I do think a lot of the people that just don't seem to get it, they have to be woken up to the fact that we're dealing with a comprehensive worldview. That's why I brought up intersectionality. It's not just race or just gender, or just sexuality. It's all of those things. And you can't, people will want to say things like, well, I accept critical race theory, but not queer theory. And I'll say, read the critical race theorists. They will tell you, you can't do that. They will say flat out, you cannot apply critical race theory only to race. You must apply it to gender sexuality. That goes back to like 1993, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw. I can show you, they're all the quotes in the book. <laughs> Sorry, my little rant's over, but I, some of these people are, are just need to admit I have not read the primary sources. I will not get my opinions on critical race theory or queer theory from MSNBC, or even, unfortunately, from some progressive Christian author or scholar, because I'm just here to tell you, they're not telling you the truth. <laughs> I, I don't know how to say it. They're hiding things from you. So I don't, don't trust me. I'm begging you. I can give you some books to read that will 
turn your stomach <laughs> to put it mildly. So there you go. So, so to continue that thought, like would, would a, like a progressive Christian who say wants to affirm same sex marriage, but doesn't want to affirm any of this other stuff. Is there a natural jumping off point for them or is it an all or nothing sort of bargain? Yeah. And for it's so I can't, I, okay. It's, it's all or nothing at this point. Um, good luck being a same-sex marriage affirming pastor who rejects transgender. Like, I show me a single pastor out there. He's like, I totally fully embrace lesbian and gay marriage, but I reject transgender. Uh, you know, that that's, it's it's it's, a, it's one acronym, LGBTQ plus, and the plus is there for other identities that will be added in the future, um, and. That that's again, you don't see that because it's all of a piece. And again, it's not because it's just political. It goes back to the theory. The theory itself says that all of these categories are interlocking. So it's it'd be like saying, you know, I I am firmly uh, in favor of of uh, of same sex marriage, but I'm totally against interracial marriage. You'd be like, who? What? Who? That's not, that's, not, that's not a category for us. There's no one out there who's thinking that way. Yeah, because this is how, the, but it's, it's more than just politics. It's how the theory conceptualizes race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, religion, all the other things. They're all interlocking. So I'm, again, begging you. Here's a book. It's right on my desk. If you want to understand sort of the worldview, this is Robin D'Angelo, uh, Aslam Sensui, Robin D'Angelo's book is Everyone Really Equal? It is uh, a great window into the way that critical theorists think. And that's where I got the figure 5.1. It's right here on the, the social binary. There it is. Can you see it? It's kind of washed out. There we go. There's all the oppressor groups, all the oppressed groups, different oppressions, racism, classism, sexism. This is how they think about reality. So if you don't understand that, yeah, you're not going to get the 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 way in which this is a functional religion you, you, it's not piecemeal so okay i've got two two more questions sure. um one to kind of continue this thought of the, these two opposing world uses like one of the struggles that i think we find in christendom is that we have a we have so I, I I listened to a an interview with brandon robertson yesterday i'm sure you, well, many oh, people yeah. have heard of brandon robertson um and one of the struggles that they, that they had in this interview is that, you know, we as, as you know, kind of confessional Christians or, or Christians in general, we appeal to an authority, namely the word of God. And progressive Christians, especially the types like Brian Robertson, don't. And critical theorists don't have, doesn't seem to have any sort of um, appeal to authority. No, so like, yeah. so it seems like there is no jumping off point even for them. They're They're just, they're completely tossed to the winds of change. And I think this is where, it becomes really difficult to try to have any sort of engagement or conversation because we have, we have some sort of, we have a, we have a Bible, you know, to, to give us some, some laws and parameters to think, think about these things. Well, their that, authority to them, their authority probably is lived experience, right? The, the lived experience of marginalized groups and people who have attained a critical consciousness. Again, this is all in my book, but um, they, they would not just, uh, a blanket they would not appeal to anybody who's an oppressed person like any black person any woman no because some black people some hispanics some women some people have internalized oppression 
So you have to go to people who've gotten woke, who have a critical consciousness, and then they can tell you about reality. Um, so uh, the lecture, oh, this lecture, people are asking where the uh, video yeah. is going to be posted. It'll be on YouTube. Okay. Uh, anyway, so that's their authority. They appeal ultimately to lived experience of oppressed people who have achieved a critical consciousness, which means you can kind of ignore conservative people of color, conservative women, et cetera, because they have not achieved a critical consciousness. But it, seem, it seems like, we're at, like there's an impasse, which bring, like, which is, like, brings us to Peter's question to wrap us up. It's like, how do you, how do you authentically engage, like, I guess, the, the woke um, ideology folk without appearing oppressive, homophobic, heterosexual, normative? Because like, you, we, like, we, mm -hmm. we're completely somebody's opposing each other. Yeah, you, so you have to understand their worldview. You have to. It's not, so, so for example, like when you say, well, I want to appear heteronormative, or, you, but you are. You can't not, making an argument that counters their claims is heteronormative, no matter how, you, how kindly you say it. So you can't accept their categories. You have to go back to the very first principles and say, well, your definition of hegemony and cult, you know, is wrong. Your, your definition of oppression is just wrong. I don't accept it. The Bible, it doesn't comport with the Bible. So the gender binary is not oppressive because oppression does not mean anyone imposing their norms on you. That's not what oppression is. So you have to understand them well enough to be able to pinpoint your disagreements, your fundamental disagreements, and then uh, contradict and challenge those. So for example, you could just say, I reject the idea that certain people have a, an inviolable lived experience that we can't question. I reject that, and here's why. Then if they say, well, I just accept that, then you can, you can point out the, um, the, the contradictions, the internal contradictions there, but you do hit a brick wall because at some level, people do just have different presuppositions than you do. You know, if someone just says, I assume, I, my assumption is that language is, uh, is not real, that words have no meaning. Well, what do you say to that? You can't, you can't use words. <laughs> They're going to say, I don't think words have meaning. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think logic is valid. I don't believe in logic. Well, how are you going to convince them logically that they're wrong? So in some ways, you have to go back to what they believe at, at their core and then at least, at least pinpoint it and then show them what they're really pinning their hopes to. Because I agree that oftentimes you launch into these discussions when you really have not unpacked the basic assumptions the other person's making at the deep religious level. And we, we need to. Well, I think the other thing that fits in there is this idea of using the same words, but with different dictionaries. We're using different yeah. definitions of the same language, which makes having a conversation really bloody difficult. Yeah. So, well, the, the um, final section of my book is called Engaging. So we have two chapters on how to engage people who have embraced this woke worldview. And so there is much more there. Awesome. Um, well, thanks, Neil, for joining us.